Shalom. It is always a treat to be invited to speak to my own church family and to share. So thank you, Pastor Terry, for this invitation. I love the holidays as well. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving this past Thursday. Mine was a little bit different, and maybe you noticed that it was different for me because the first day of Hanukkah coincided with Thanksgiving. Now, that hasn't happened since the 1800s. It's not going to happen again for 70,000 years. And so you can imagine that we were wanting to kind of take advantage of this strange confluence. And so people came up with the name Thanksgivica. You know, so we, we have that. And there, I even found on the internet some, um, some unusual recipes to combine the culinary nature, uh, one of which I will not recommend, but I did try, and that is that you marinate your turkey in Manischewitz wine. <laughs> and uh, it actually tastes great, tasted like turkey, but the bird turned out purple. I had a purple turkey for Thanksgiving. So uh, it was an interesting experience. And of course, we're still celebrating Hanukkah. It goes for eight nights. Tonight's the fifth night, leading into this wonderful season of which we're kicking off our, uh, our service today with the idea of embracing this journey towards the Christmas movement. And you know, Pastor Terry asked me to address the idea of embracing the promise. You know, so often when we think of Christmas, we think of something that happened in the past that's still relevant for us today. And while that's true, I want us to flip it around today and think about the promise as it has been anticipated. Uh, something that is yet to be fulfilled. As the Jewish people received that promise, and it's been a sense of anticipation, also a sense of irony and wonder and concern. I remember um, maybe some of you saw the musical and the movie Fiddler on the Roof and all of the travails of the Jewish community there in Russia during the 1700s and the 1800s. And there was a scene towards the end uh, where the village of Anatevka, where Tevia and all the other Jewish people are living, is undergoing extreme persecution, a pogrom as they call it, to such an extent that they all had to leave. And there's some kind of lighthearted, momentary banter. One guy says, I'm, I'm going to Chicago, America. And the other guy says, I'm going to New York, America. We'll be neighbors, you know? <laughs> and so there, but there's this sense of, um, you know, loss of what was. And, and one of the young men turns to the rabbi and he says, Rabbi, for so long we've been waiting for the Messiah. Wouldn't now be a good time for him to come? And the rabbi says, my son, We'll have to wait for him somewhere else. So there's this poignancy of the Messiah and the promise of his coming. And even because it seems so long now, a bit of cynicism that has developed. And many have given up waiting for that promise to be fulfilled altogether. And I guess that cynicism is also a part of our society, you know, We've been talking a lot in the news today, uh, these days, about the promise made and not necessarily being kept. There's a lot of controversy. And I think all of us have had the experience of having someone, maybe someone very close to us, make a promise and then break it, and how that makes us feel. Or perhaps on the other shoe, on the, the shoe on the other foot, is that we've made 
a promise that we found ourselves unable or unwilling to keep as well. And so there's this sense of cynicism that develops about promises. Yeah, that, like that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, a poet once said that a promise made is a debt unpaid. So there's a contractual nature to promises that seems to have failed us, and we get cynical. But the one thing that we can know for sure is that God keeps his promises. A promise is only as good as the person making it, and God never breaks a promise, never. And we can count on that. And as we enter into this season and look at this promise and look to embrace the promise, we can find how has God kept his promises in the past and then we can be encouraged to believe his promises for us for the future. And, you know, I want us to think about it in terms of a jigsaw puzzle. Some of you perhaps are fanatics about jigsaw puzzles. I'm not, but we all have had some experience of putting them together. And each a piece of the puzzle has a different hue and color to it. And as you begin to put the pieces together, an image starts to develop and you begin to see a picture. And, and so all of those puzzle pieces are a part of the promise, but the full picture is what we're looking for. And there are literally hundreds of those puzzle pieces in the Tanakh, that is the Jewish Bible, the Jewish scriptures, that were part of God's unveiling of the promise that has been anticipated for so long by the Jewish people, and which we believe today is a promise that has been kept. And I've just selected a few of them. You can see in your handout some of these uh, puzzle pieces that come together beautifully to show us this amazing promise. And the first one, and each of them, by the way, has a backstory to it that's helpful to unpack. And the first one is from Genesis chapter 3. And for those of us who've read that part of the Bible, you'll remember that this promise comes to us out of deep tragedy. The greatest tragedy that happened to humanity, the story of what happened in the garden. And we know that God had given this idyllic situation for the first human beings to enjoy. Uh, the fruit of all these trees, just a peaceful situation, but he gave us also something that we were to do. He said, there's just one tree I don't want you to touch. I don't want you to eat it. And uh, because if you do, you're going to die. And that was a, another kind of a promise, wasn't it? You know, we know about those kinds of promises. Don't put your hand on the hot stove because I promise you it won't feel good. And so God said, don't eat from this tree. And it's not about forbidden fruit, is it? It's about a trust relationship. And the relationship, as we know, ultimately gets broken. And so in chapter 3, God is actually speaking to the three different players in this drama of this great tragedy that occurred at the very beginning in the distant past. And God speaks to the man and he says, you know, because this relationship of trust has been broken, you're going to toil. And it's not going to be like it was in the garden where everything was there for you so easily. The sweat of your brow, you're going to bring forth fruit with thorns and thistles. It's going to be a tough life. And we've seen that work its way all the way into the 21st century, haven't we? To the woman, he said, you know what? You are going to have pain. 
in your life as well, especially in bringing forth children. And even in your relationship with your husband, it's going to be strained. You'll see it. We've seen that as well. But this passage in your handout actually comes when God speaks to the third player in the story. Remember that one? The serpent. Now, the Bible and other places calls that serpent ha-satan. That's Hebrew for the adversary. We use the term Satan because Satan, in the form of the serpent, began this trouble by tempting the woman. And the rest is history, as they say. And so God actually addresses the adversary, his adversary and the adversary of his creation. And that's what some Bible scholars have called the proto-evangelion, this Genesis 3.15. That's a Latin phrase that means the first announcement of good news, the first promise, if you will. So let's take a look at that and see if you can find the promise. It's not readily apparent. God says, and I will cause hostility between you, that's the serpent or the adversary, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Doesn't sound like much of a promise yet, does it? But that word offspring kind of starts to give us a hint of something because it's an unusual phrase. In Hebrew, it's zerah, which means seed the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. The Bible never talks about the offspring, the seed of the woman. It always talks about the seed of the man. And yet here we find that phrase, that strange phrase, to indicate that there's something about the offspring of a woman that's going to engage with the adversary. And more than that, look what it says. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will strike your head. Uh, remember, we're talking about a serpent. What happens when you strike the head of the serpent? That's how you kill it. Not the tail, not the middle, but on the head. You crush that head, and you change the circumstance. But in the process, God says you, the serpent, will strike his heel. It's going to be a painful encounter. But ultimately, this offspring is going to reverse the brokenness, the tragedy that began in the garden. And that is a promise that begins the jigsaw puzzle for us. And just a few chapters later, we find the promise of that offspring being narrowed and the color and hue of these Jigsaw puzzle pieces begins to be more defined when God says in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, remember him? Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Okay, so at this time, Abram, the Bible tells us, was living in what's called Ur of the Chaldees, and that is where today we, have, we find the country of Iraq, right by the river Euphrates. That's where he was. And when he first encounters God, God is going to extend the promise to him and narrow the focus for all of us to see. And he says, here's how you enter into that relationship with me, with faith. Faith in the promise. So the promise that began 
in tragedy is now strengthened by the exercise of faith. Abram, when you do this, when you enter into this promise with me, here's what I'm going to do for you. Verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. Now, this is extraordinary, certainly for Abram and his wife Sarah, because you see, at the time, they were in their 70s, and they had no children. And so all of a sudden, God says, because of your faith exercised toward my promise, you're going to have children, and not only children, but they're going to become a nation, and a great nation. And yet, it would seem that God hangs this precious promise on a very thin thread, the lives and the future of an infertile couple. <laughs> but God loves to show that he keeps his promises, you see. And so he says, here's what's going to happen. Not only the nation will be great, but I'll make you famous. Here we are talking about him thousands of years later. And all over the world, everybody knows about this guy, not because he was so great, but because God is great. And he keeps his promises. He says, you're going to be a blessing to all the others too. You see, this is a blessing that is not just contained in one man or even in one people, but I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. God made a precious promise. Yes, it seems to be hanging by a, a thin thread, and yet we can look and see that the promise has been kept. Because from Abraham and Sarah, so late in life, was born Isaac. And from Isaac, Jacob. And from Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. The people who still exist to this day, despite all of the tragedies of history. Not because of how great they are, but because of how great God is who keeps his promises. And now we see that the offspring of the woman becomes the offspring of the father of the nation of Israel and his wife. And the picture becomes more clear. And all throughout the rest of the scriptures and the writings and in the prophets, we begin to get more pieces of the puzzle. And many of them come in the book of Isaiah the prophet, who actually wrote 700 years before Jesus was ever born. And some of the most famous of these jigsaw pieces are things that we talk about at this season. Behold. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. A virgin conceive? Oh, well, maybe that's what we were talking about in Genesis 3, the, the, the offspring of the woman. It's becoming more clear. God's doing something supernatural here to demonstrate his faithfulness to keep a promise that only he can keep. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9. And we find out that this child, this offspring, is actually Mighty God, Everlasting. How is this possible? Only with God. And now in chapter 49, Isaiah begins to fill in the color and hue of the purpose for this offspring, why he's coming. We've been getting hints of it, but look, this Messiah, this anointed one, the one who is 
promised that we're looking for is talking. And now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in my mother's womb to be his servant. So this one is going to be the servant of the Lord who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. That's a great purpose right there. That Israel should be restored to a full relationship with God that has been broken. The Lord has honored me, and my God has given me strength. Watch this now, verse 6. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. There's a big picture that's going on here. God is expanding the role of this Messiah that Israel was looking for to be a universal, all peoples. That's Gentiles mean nations. So all of the nations are going to have what? Salvation. And here's another Hebrew gem. The word is Yeshua T, my salvation. Yeshua, that's the name of Jesus. That's the reason why in Matthew 1, the angel spoke to Joseph and said, and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. And so we begin to see that all of these different pieces of the puzzle are coming together to present this beautiful picture of God's intention to be, make good on his promise that reaches all the way back to the distant past. And there have been people who have been anxiously looking forward to it. And the one that I model myself and I want to hold up for all of us to see today is a man named Simeon. And the story behind this Luke 2 passage is very compelling. The, the child, Jesus has just been born. And so in accordance with a long-standing Jewish tradition, going back to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary are practicing what's called pidyon haben, the redemption of the firstborn. When the first child of the family comes, the parents are obligated to take that child up to the temple to offer an offering in thanks to God for opening the womb, for providing an heir the offspring, and there is Jesus, and we can just picture the scene of the couple coming, the baby, maybe in Mary's arms, and they come into the temple, and <laughs> they don't stay anonymous. This wonderful man named Simeon, a pious man, the scriptures say devout, who is looking for the consolation of Israel. It says, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms, and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Obviously, Simeon had been reading Isaiah 49, right? He quotes that in the temple as he's holding Jesus in his arms. Talk about embracing Christmas. Simeon wasn't looking for a king riding in on a white horse with an army. 
He was looking for the simple and yet profound. And that's how God speaks to us as well. He confirms his promises in wonderful ways. And I just have a few thoughts of application coming from these jigsaw puzzles because when we see the picture and we realize the faithfulness of God over the years, we can see that we likewise, as we embrace the promise, find a personal promise for us as well. He's so faithful. But that faithfulness comes to us out of brokenness. God speaks to us in our brokenness. The promise is extended to us in that brokenness that we all share in. And, and it provides us with tremendous hope. I think that all of us have experienced brokenness in different ways. I've been impacted myself. A devastating uh, thing happened, a relationship uh, that was broken, that made me feel as though all of what my hopes had been for my life were dashed. And, you know, if God had asked for my advice, I would have been able to take a pass on that. <laughs> but it wasn't to be. And so in that moment, in that season, I realized the promise of the scripture that says God is near to the brokenhearted. And he came near to us through this one, this Emmanuel, God with us. And so often when we struggle with those kinds of experiences, and maybe some are in that moment right now where it's just happened, we get the feeling that all of our hopes are dashed. And we're disqualified from whatever it was that we aspired to. I understand that. But as I was looking at this promise that came out of tragedy so long ago, I realized something special. And that is that the woman who was the first one to participate in what was ultimately that broken relationship also was used by God to bring about the reconciliation. God doesn't disqualify those who come to him in their brokenness. He is near to the brokenhearted so that no matter what experience we're having in our lives, not only does God restore, but he actually uses sometimes in a wonderful way the experiences of our brokenness to strengthen us and to allow us to give that strength to others, to give us hope for something that we never anticipated, that we never signed up for, and yet that God intends for us all along, O oh, sovereign Lord. And I think God speaks to us not only in our brokenness, but he speaks to us in our tentativeness and our narrow limitations and expands our vision. Despite our limitations, you know, God said to the Messiah, you're going to be my servant, but it's not enough for you. It's not enough just 
to restore Israel to me. I'm going to do much more than what has been thought would happen through your life. And that's really important for us too. Especially in a season where there's a lot of emotional baggage sometimes we carry with us and we look and we get discouraged. And you know, in my experience, one of the best things to do when we find ourselves in those places is to get our eyes off of ourselves. To say, God, what do you want me to do to be your servant? Because if we love him, he, he's already told us that. Just like Jesus, we're to be his servant, to bring light to those around us. And so when we look away from ourselves and look to him, he expands our vision and enables us to see the problems of others and to help. And that's why I was so grateful to know of this giving calendar, this catalog, the spirit of Christmas, as, as a very practical thing that we can do coming out of today. Take it home and pray, God, expand my vision for what you want for me as I approach this Christmas moment. Look, look for ways that God can tell us how he wants us to serve him and to help others. And he'll do it because it's part of his promise to take the broken things of life and make them whole and use them for his glory. What greater purpose could there be for us? But of course, the Simeon story really resonates. What a beautiful picture that is of the puzzle coming together. We're talking about embracing the promise and here's this man who had been waiting and longing and looking for the fulfillment and then had the privilege of holding it in his arms, the promise kept. I have to tell you, um, I have two children who I love with all my heart, but the, a year and a half ago, I, I entered a very exclusive club. It's called grandparent <laughs> and my little granddaughter Nora uh, when I was able to just take her in my arms you know the joy you know it came at a time where I was discouraged and it all melted away because there's such hope and promise she looks at me she calls me Baba she says I yell you Baba <laughs> and when that happens, man, all is right with the world, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. But think about how much greater it is when we, like Simeon, embrace the child of the promise, of hope, of the grace of God that comes to us through him. As we look forward in our lives, we can anticipate that the God who was faithful in the past to keep each and every promise will likewise be faithful to us as we embrace the good gift that he gives, as we embrace Emmanuel, who is God with us. Now the band's gonna actually sing my favorite Christmas carol, which is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Maybe you've heard it. You'll hear a different version. Think about the promise to you in Emmanuel as they sing. First, we're going to have our time of giving, and let me pray for us. Father, you are a great and loving God who desires to bless your people. Even in the midst of our 
challenging times and our brokenness and our struggle, we find you there. And through faith, we see a bigger vision. We see healing. We see restored purpose. We see the embrace of a loving God. So we reach out back and embrace the promise for our lives today. And as we move towards the Christmas moment, Lord, reaffirm our faith and our hope and our joy and our confidence in the child who is the Christ, the Messiah. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.